Hi, my name is Brian and I'm the pastor of Vision at Holy City Church. I'm glad that you found our online sermon resources and I pray that the Lord would use them to strengthen your faith. I would exhort you not to use our online sermon resources as a substitute for regular involvement in your own local church. That being said, I pray that our teaching resources would be helpful to you and conform you even more into the image of Christ. Hebrews 2, 5-9 For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor, because of the suffering and de- suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. I've recently began reading uh, the Silmarillion. Few of you know that what, what that is probably. Silmarillion, J.R.R. Tolkien's uh, collection of tales about the heroes and villains and important events during the first and second ages of Middle Earth. <laughs> Leading up to Tolkien's more famous books, Suzanne's favorite, leading up to Tolkien's more famous books, The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings trilogy. Uh, early in The Lord of the Rings, we're introduced to a uh, shady looking character named Strider. Now, if you haven't read Lord of the Rings, uh, this is going to be a spoiler, but you've had almost 100 years <laughs> to read this trilogy. So. I don't feel bad. Strider is a ranger of the north, a wandering people who are descended from the greatest and noblest race of men, the Numenorians, who Tolkien writes about in the Silmarillion. So Frodo the Hobbit, if you've seen the movies, Frodo's first impression of Strider is in a, uh, a loud tavern, loud bar, the Prancing Pony, uh, Strider is, is tall, but he's weather-beaten, wearing worn mud-cake boots. He has a shaggy head of dark hair, flecked with gray, and he goes largely unnoticed in the loud bar. And Strider, while looking sketchy, is actually there to save Frodo and his friends from the Black Riders, the accursed but powerful servants of the wicked enemy of Middle-earth, Sauron. Now Strider is a man of great character. He's humble and he's lowly, not hungry for power. And more amazing is when it's revealed, spoiler, that the lowly Strider is in fact Aragorn, son of Arathorn, the heir to the throne of men. It is Aragorn who will unite the kingdoms of men, lead men into battle against Sauron and his servants, and secure the victory for all of Middle-earth. And while Aragorn may have briefly been identified as the humble, lowly, worn strider, mud-cake boots, rough-looking, dirty cloak, I want you to hear the description of Aragorn shortly before he assumes the throne in the last book, The Return of the King. Tall as the sea kings of old, he stood above all that were near. Ancient of days, he seemed, and yet in the flower of manhood. And wisdom sat upon his brow, and strength and healing were in his hands, and a light was about him. Aragorn's initial humiliation as a worn wanderer ends with his exaltation as the promised son and rightful king of men, as well as victor over Middle-earth's wicked enemies. In Hebrews 2, 5-9, to 9, the
the author shows us that the son's initial humiliation as the crucified son of man leads to his exaltation as the promised Davidic son, rightful king of all men, as well as victor over the earth's wicked enemies. The author wants us to see the incarnate Son of God as superior to angels, last week, remember, so that we won't drift away from the gospel, so that we will pay closer attention to the message that we have heard. This morning, we're, we're going to look at three points in particular. The first is this. Read and know the Old Testament because it lays the foundation for God, Christ, and us. Read and know the Old Testament because it lays the foundation for God, Christ, and us. One more time. Read and know the Old Testament because it lays the foundation for God, Christ, and us. Second point, keep your eyes forward because Jesus is king of the coming new creation. Keep your eyes forward because Jesus is king of the new, coming new creation. In case Haven kept you from being able to hear that point, that sweet, sweet baby in the back. Keep your eyes forward because Jesus is king of the coming new creation. Even the babies will cry out, right? Third, have hope because Jesus represents you before our caring God. Have hope because Jesus represents you before our caring God. Have hope because Jesus represents you before our caring God. It's like the sweetest sounds. All right. Okay, thus far, the author of Hebrews has argued that the Son is superior in his revelation. Because as the Son of God, He is the finality and fullness of God's revelation of Himself. The Son is the end, the goal, the fulfillment of all that God has revealed in the Old Testament. The Son is Himself, very God of very God, God revealing Himself to us. The Son has inherited a more excellent name than the angels because He alone has ascended to the Father's right hand as a result of His work on the cross, which has purified us from sin. The Son is the superior prophet, the priest, and the king. The Son alone enjoys sonship with God the Father. No angel has been named or declared the Son. The Son is both God and the promised Son of David, who is seated on the throne forever. The Son created all things, and He upholds all things by the word of His power. And angels are creatures. They are products of the Son's creative work. Angels worship the Son of God. Angels serve the Son, and they minister to God's people. That's Hebrews 1. And we saw last week in Hebrews 2, 1 to 4, that the author builds his case and makes this particular argument because the Jewish Christians to whom he writes are enduring so much difficulty for the Christian faith, they're suffering so much for the sake of Jesus, that these Jewish Christians are genuinely, truly tempted to turn and forsake Jesus and to go back to the Old Covenant. The author is teaching them that it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense to go back to the shadowy old covenant promises of a Savior when you have the reality and substance of the promised new covenant Savior in the Son. Don't go back to that which pointed to the Son when you have the Son. 
And not only does the author seek to show these saints that the Old Testament points to, finds its fulfillment in the Son, the Son has come, He's here. But He also wants them to remind them, not only has the Son come, not only is His new covenant better, but the severity of covenant-breaking is far greater in the new covenant than under the old covenant. If there, were, there was just retribution for, for every transgression and disobedience under the old covenant mediated by angels, how much more so will there be just retribution for you forsaking the new covenant of the Son, who is far greater than the angels? Don't turn away from the new covenant. Don't go back to that which pointed to the Son. What do you think he'll do to people who forsake his son's new covenant when you see clear judgment against those who violated an angel-mediated old covenant? So what does he say to us? Saints, don't drift. Don't go back to the things from which God has saved you. For the Jews... Brought them out of the old covenant. Brought them out of the law. It was meant to be temporary. Meant to point to the Son. Meant to point to the new covenant. Don't go back to it, Jewish Christians. And for those of us who weren't Jews under the old covenant, we, we still can't go back to the law and works righteousness, but we certainly can't go back to those things that once dominated us. We can't drift towards those things. Look to the Son, pay closer attention to His gospel. And as we turn to 2, 5 to 9, we see that the author continues his argument from chapter 1. Chapter 1 beginning in verse 5, and he goes all the way through 2, 4. So he's continuing this argument. The Son is far superior to angels in every way. The Son is the Son, angels aren't. The Son is the Creator, angels are creatures. The Son is God, angels worship God. The Son is the promised King. Angels are ministering spirits who serve Him and serve His people. And, look at 2.5. God has subjected the world to come, not to angels, but to the Son. So how does the author of Hebrews come to this conclusion? Well, he gives us a, a, an exegesis, a, a brief exposition. He explains Psalm 8 that we read in our call to worship, which brings us to the first point. Read and know the Old Testament because it lays the foundation for God, Christ, and us. All right, now what does Psalm 8 say? What's the context? Now, the author of Hebrews begins by quite casually saying, somewhere uh, someone has written and then quotes Psalm 8, 4-6. Now, does his casual comment on the authorship of Psalm 8 mean that the author of Hebrews doesn't remember the source? Clearly not, because he quotes it exactly from the Greek Old Testament, from the Septuagint. He's been quoting the, the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, masterfully throughout Hebrews 1 and 2. He quotes this particular passage quite well. But what's important to the author of Hebrews is that whoever wrote this text was inspired by God himself. That, that's the main point. Not the human author. It's that God has said this. God is the ultimate author of all the Scripture. So there's no need to emphasize the human author's identity. His Hebrew Christian audience would have, would have known this text. They would have recognized it. And the author emphasizes God as the one who breathed out Psalm 8. Now, for our sake, we need to know that Psalm 8 is written by King David, which is very important in how we interpret the psalm. In Psalm 8, as we read earlier, as Pastor Drew read earlier, David worships Yahweh by focusing on two important attributes of God, as well as by providing an important comparison between man and angels. First, David highlights both the, ma the majestic transcendence of God 
and the tender, caring eminence of God. What do I mean by that? David says God is transcendent. He is immeasurably greater and higher than anything and everything and all of creation. God alone created all things, sustains all things, sits in glory high above all things. We cannot attain to his position. But when David sees the sheer magnitude of God's magnificence in creation, David can't help but marvel that this transcendent, incomprehensibly great and glorious God would not only care about weak and tiny little mankind, but God would also bestow upon man such incredible glory and honor by making man in his own image and giving them dominion over all the earth. Beloved, when you look at God's revelation of himself, God's word, David's response must be our response. How great, how majestic, how glorious you are, God. How powerful you are in creation. Casting out trillions upon trillions of stars. Knowing them all by name. Creating billions upon billions of galaxies in the universe. And in this tiny little galaxy, the Milky Way. Upon this tiny planet earth you made creatures who share your image and your likeness and you know the, the, the number of hairs on our heads you know us better than we know ourselves man and woman are your image bearers and you created us to enjoy covenant relationship with you I mean that's utterly astounding utterly astounding He chose humans of all of his creatures. Day six climax of creation. It was man. It could have been something else in his divine wisdom. But he chose humans, creatures who who have to be unconscious for a third of their lives just to live. Creatures who can't tolerate too much heat, too much cold, or will die. Creatures who often can't open pickle jars, or fold fitted sheets, or remember somebody's name that they just met in the midst of talking to them. God chose man to reflect and represent his magnificent glory and dominion to the world. And he gave to us purpose and he gave us value that is unsurpassed in all of creation. That God, David writes, a God so great that his glory demands constant worship, unending praise from his heavenly creatures, that God tenderly cares for you and for me. God's eminence, His covenant and relational nearness to His intimacy with us is unique in all of creation. Humanity alone shares God's image and humanity alone was created to enjoy a covenant relationship with our Creator God. What are we David asked that you would even think about us, God. What are are we that you would even care for us? David has a right estimation of himself before Yahweh. And and we, we can imitate David here in our humility. What are we that you care for us? And that's not saying, oh man, I'm less than dirt. That's that's no, that's seeing the value and the purpose in you as an image bearer, but ultimately it's 
It's seeing God for who he is. As, as amazingly glorious. Who am I compared to you that you would even care about me? And yet you do. And praise God that the Lord thinks about us and cares for us, not because of what we do for him. Not because of how well we do things for him. Not because of how well we've obeyed. The Lord thinks about us and cares for us because because of him, his own character. His perfect character and attributes are the unshakable realities behind why God would love sinful, disobedient creatures. And when David writes about man, and he writes about the son of man, he's talking about himself. That's important because he's, he's writing the psalm, and he's like, well, how is it that you could think of me? So he's certainly writing of himself, but he's also pointing back to someone else who came before him in redemptive history. And this is where we need to, we need to think carefully about what the author of Hebrews is doing as he's reading Psalm 8. In Psalm 8, David points back to the original man, Adam, who was made in God's image and was given dominion over all things. The language he uses in Psalm 8 to describe man comes from Genesis 1.26 to 1.28. What does it mean to be made in God's image and likeness? Now, we, we use that language a lot. Hey, you're an image bearer. Hey, you're made in God's image. Hey, you're made in God's likeness. What does that mean? Because we talk about it, but I'm not sure that some of you can, can articulate it as well as you want to. Some of you may struggle to articulate, well, what does it mean to be an image bearer? What separates me from being a dog? Like, is it being rational? Is it, is it me being able to think critically? Is it me having a relationship with the Lord? Like, what, what is it about me that makes me an image bearer? Now, to bear God's image and likeness, I want to be clear, image and likeness are described the same thing. They're just two words to describe the same thing. To bear God's image and likeness is to express that God made people to enjoy two important realities that no other creature in all of creation enjoys. The first is sonship, and the second is rule. Sonship and rule. Okay, with regard to sonship. In the ancient Near East, which is the context in which Moses is writing the book of Genesis and is talking about what it means to be made in the image of God, only the king of a nation, particularly Egypt, only the king of a nation was considered to be a son of God. The king was the son of God. Or the son of the gods. In Genesis 1 and 2, however, Moses teaches us that every person, not just the king, was to enjoy, was created to enjoy sonship with God. We were all made to enjoy covenant relationship with our God. This should inform how we understand royal priesthood. Right? You don't have to be a king. That sonship, covenant relationship with our God. The, the, the vertical relationship of the Imago Dei, the, the image of God. We were made to love God and to enjoy faithful covenant relationship with Him as sons. Sons and daughters. With regard to rule, we were made to rule over all of creation. I've said this before. Many of you have heard it before. In the ancient Near East, a king would often put statues of himself or markers of himself all over his kingdom, images of himself all over his domain. Why? So that when people in his kingdom saw them, they would know the king saying, I rule here. This is my domain. I own it. And in Genesis 1 and 2, Moses teaches us that God made all of mankind in his image and told man and woman to spread, all, to spread over all the world so that all the world, wherever we are, would know 
God rules here. This belongs to God. Serve Him. We were made to exercise dominion on the earth on God's behalf as His ambassadors or vice regents to the rest of the world. We were created to subdue and rule over and care for and cultivate all the earth. This ruling aspect of the image of God captures the, the horizontal aspect of the image of God. We are to love our neighbor and to love creation. Which is why the Old Covenant would say, like, the, uh, the righteous man cares for the life of his beast. We, we care for creation. We love our neighbor. And the two greatest commandments, love God, love your neighbor, they didn't start in the Old Covenant. They didn't start in the New Covenant. They started in the garden. That's what it means to be an image bearer. To love God and love your neighbor. To love God and love creation. The Apostle John says, Love is not a new command, but an old one. This is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not like Cain, Genesis 4, who murdered his brother. 1 John 3, 11 and 12. Loving God, loving your neighbor are grounded in creation. So sonship and rule are the two primary realities in what it means to bear God's image. This is going to inform how we understand Jesus and his work. Adam was the original son of God, ruler of all of creation. And it's important for us to see David looking back at God's care for and command to Adam in Genesis 1 and 2 because David believed that God's design there had implications for himself. In Psalm 2, in Psalm 8, Psalm 110, just a few examples, David takes this Adamic rule, this son of God relationship, and applies it to himself and to his own offspring because of God's covenant promise of a royal son in 2 Samuel 7, in the Davidic covenant. In Psalm 2, David writes, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. Why can David do this? Because David, like Adam, is the king and ruler of God's covenant people. David is the king of Israel, God's old covenant people. David, like Adam, is to enjoy and expand God's rest and his glory. Which is why the Old Testament, every time they, that David conquers uh, a new people and expands the boundaries of the promised land, it then says, and, and then the people had rest in the land. And the people had rest in the land. What did Adam enjoy? Day seven, rest. Adam was, a, was promised a son who would undo sin and death and the curse. Abraham was later promised a son through whom the nations would be blessed. David was promised a son who would one day sit on the throne and rule the world forever. We see it in 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant. God promised that he himself would be a father to David's son. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So David's promised son himself would be a son of God. In the Old Testament, there is greater and greater clarity as to what it meant to be made in the image of God and what it meant to be the Son of God. The, this Adam, the Son of God, who shares God's image and likeness, he ruins everything. He's promised a son who will undo the curse. And then Abraham's given greater clarity as to who the son's going to be. It's going to be through Abraham, and he's going to be a blessing to the nations. And then Israel comes, and they're the people of Abraham. And it's going to come through this particular tribe. It's going to come through Judah. He's going to be a king, but we don't really understand it. And then David comes, and he's promised a son. And David's looking back at Adam, and he's looking back at Abraham, and he's recognizing, my son is going to be that son. And I have greater and greater clarity as to what that means. He's going to be the Davidic son of Israel. And he's going to be the one through whom all the nations are going to be blessed. The language Moses applies to Adam in Genesis, David applies to the Davidic king. So when we see David looking back and talking about Adam's dominion and rule in Psalm 8, and when we see David talking about the Davidic king, God's son, who will rule the world and to whom all the kings of the earth will have to bend their knee, Psalm 2, 
And then when we see David talking about his own son, who will also be his Lord, who the Lord will put all of his enemies under his feet, like a footstool, in Psalm 110, we see that David is recognizing that the future son, his future son, will be the better Adam. He will be the better son of God. He will be the image bearer. He will be the better Davidic king that the world needs. We need a better Adam. We need a better Davidic king because Adam's sin, his rebellion, his disobedience in Genesis 3, and our sin and rebellion, they have frustrated and corrupted our image bearing. There isn't an aspect of who we are that has not been affected by sin. We don't think rightly. We don't act rightly. And that's because of Adam and because of us. We haven't lost God's image, but it has been corrupted. And apart from Jesus, we're now born condemned in Adam, born under the penalty and power of sin. We have lost rest. We have lost that intimacy and relationship, covenant relationship with the Lord. We have lost the garden. We are under God's wrath. Everything looks terrible. But with greater and greater clarity throughout the Old Testament, we see that what God was doing in Adam, he's also doing with greater clarity in David. And both men point to someone greater than both of them who will be better than them and who will bring all of God's promises to fruition. The Son promised to each one of these men will be the same man. And He will bring to fulfillment all of God's Old Testament promises. So as we read this progressive revelation uh, of, of the Old Testament, the Scripture, and what I mean by that is, is God is revealing more and more about Himself, more and more about His redemptive plan over time, the Bible doesn't fall as a, full, as a full book in Moses' lap in 1500 B.C. God is revealing progressively more and more over time with great, greater and greater clarity and specificity until, boom, the sun. And Hebrews 1 can say, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets, but now he's spoken to us with finality in the sun. All right? So this progressive revelation, when, as we read through the Old Testament, we, we see that God doesn't just say, you know, th- there will be a virgin who gives birth to a, to a son, and, and the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. There, there are those kind of predictive prophecies that are pretty straightforward. But throughout the Scriptures, we also see that God includes people and places and events and institutions that point beyond themselves to help us to understand his plan of salvation, his plan of redemption, and how that grand story of redemption centers on and is fulfilled in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And that's what the author of Hebrews is going to do throughout this book. And what this is called is called typology. It's called biblical typology. There's a lot of it in the Bible a lot of it in Hebrews. And if we don't understand that, then we're not really going to understand Hebrews. And he's starting with it, in particular, in this particular section. God's promise of a son and Savior will come from Adam through Abraham and Israel and also specifically through David's line. In Psalm 8, David certainly refers to a man generally because he's talking about mankind, right? But he's also intending to point beyond general mankind to a specific man. His son. The son of Adam. The author of Hebrews picks up what David is laying down in Psalm 8. He's teaching us how to read our Old Testament. So the author of Hebrews is teaching us that while David writes Psalm 8 to point back to Adam and then about himself, David is primarily pointing beyond Adam, beyond himself, to a future man, to a future son, to a future man and son of man who will bring the realities of Genesis 1, 26 to 28, who will bring 2 Samuel 7, who will bring Genesis 15, who will bring Psalm 8 to their fulfillment. Now look at verses 6 to 9 in Hebrews 2. The author says, Jesus 
is ultimately the man about whom David is writing. The Son of God became incarnate, taking upon himself a true and full human nature. God the Father demonstrated mindfulness and care for the incarnate Son. God the Son incarnate is the true image of God. It isn't an accident that Paul in Colossians 1.15 says that the Son is the true image of the invisible God. Like he's not making that up. It isn't an accident that Matthew in Matthew 1 traces Jesus' genealogy to King David. It's not an accident that Luke in Luke 4 traces Jesus' genealogy through David, through Abraham, all the way back to Adam. It isn't an accident that Jesus is tempted in the wilderness for 40 days, just like Israel was. Because he's the true Israel, and he's the true king, and he didn't fail. And it isn't an accident that Jesus is repeatedly referred to as the son of David by the Jews throughout the Gospels. It isn't an accident that Jesus is welcomed into Jerusalem, riding on a colt, people waving palm fronds, singing, Hosanna. It isn't an accident that Jesus, as the last Adam, is tempted in the garden to abandon the cross genuinely tempted and yet he says not my will your will be done Adam was tempted in the garden he failed Jesus was tempted in the garden and he redeemed all of us it isn't an accident that Jesus is called the king of the Jews by the Romans by the Gentiles at his crucifixion all of it is divinely intended, bringing to fulfillment promises and patterns that God gave in the Old Testament so that his people would understand and grasp the salvation that he brought as well as glorify him for it. So we've got to read and know our Old Testaments. Particularly if we're going to read Hebrews and understand the points. But we want to read and know our Old Testaments so that we can see Jesus clearly. Which brings us to point two. Keep your eyes forward because Jesus is king of the coming new creation. All right, so I've hit a lot of theological truths, a lot of realities that serve as our grounding for this particular passage as well as for 10 to 18. Okay, I know that, that was a lot of biblical theology. You know, seems, oh man, this is awfully heady. But the author of Hebrews wrote it, not me. So, we need to lay the foundation and the sun was for a little while lower than angels. What does that mean? I don't think that that means that he was ontologically lower than the angels. Okay? Like in his being, he is lower than the angels. We certainly see throughout the scriptures the tremendous glory of angels. Oftentimes fallen humanity wants to worship the angels when they appear in both the Old Testament and the New Testament because they're, they're mistaken by, to be God himself, brilliant as the sun. There's certainly a sense in which man has been subordinated to angels in this present time because of our sin and disobedience. But the author of Hebrews, I think, is also picking up on an idea that mankind is, is temporarily subordinate to the angels as the angels have been entrusted with the administration of this old creation. In Deuteronomy 32.8, in, in the, the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, it states that God established boundaries for the nations according to the numbers of the angels of God. In Daniel 10, an angel tells Daniel, Daniel's been praying for three weeks, and an angel appears to him on the 21st day. And the angel says, Daniel, the Lord loves you. And I've come to answer your prayer. And uh, the Lord sent me the day that you prayed. But I've been fighting with the uh, prince of Persia. And it was only because Michael came and helped me that I was able to, to leave that fight and come and deliver to you the vision and the message that the Lord wants you to know. So, persevere in prayer. You don't know what's going on in the spiritual realm. 
what the Lord's doing in you. And he says, I'm going to tell you this message, but, but then I've got to go back and help Michael because he's going to fight the prince of Greece. So these, these angels, these, in this particular case, this, these fallen angels function as princes of specific nations, prince of Persia, the prince of Greece. In Daniel 12, it's revealed that the angel Mike, Michael has charge over the people of Israel. So in these Old Testament passages, it seems that angels, possibly as a result of our sin, function as overseers or administrators in this present creation. I think the author of Hebrews is picking up on this idea as well. The Son of God became a man, and as a man, joined us in being temporarily subordinated to the angels. Having to live in a world that has been corrupted and polluted by sin and death. The Son entered into a fallen world with a broken humanity and was made lower than the angels because the Son was truly and fully man. The Son had to be fully man in order to save humanity, this broken humanity, from their sin. So Psalm 8 not only speaks of Adam, it not only speaks of David, but it primarily speaks to the humiliation of the promised Son who, though he equally shares in the divine nature, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped and emptied himself by becoming a man. He made himself nothing. He took the form of a servant. And he was humble to the greatest degree, death on a Roman cross, under God's wrath. Why? So that he might save his people from their sins. But the lowering of the incarnate Son of God was only temporary. His humiliation has now turned to exaltation. How? Jesus has been crowned with glory and honor by virtue of his death on the cross as our substitute under God's wrath. It was the incarnate Son's death, his substitutionary death, that qualified him for his throne because in God's wisdom... The promised crown comes through the cursed cross. Because without the cross, you don't have a kingdom. Without a cross, you don't have a people. Not a redeemed people. Every single bit of creation is now under the throne of Christ Jesus. The last enemy to put under King Jesus' feet will be death, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. And we're just waiting for that day. When God will soon, with finality, put death to death, beloved. When the Son returns as judge on the last day of this old creation, and we all cry with rejoicing and praise and thanksgiving while the unbelieving, rebellious world cries for mountains to fall on them to save them from his wrath. We see the new creation in part as we see each other. We see the new creation as we, the saints of God, have been made into new creations. We're, we're the first glimpses. Jesus was the first fruit. He, he's been raised. He's a new man. New, first man of the new creation. Head of the new creation. Will never die again. Glorified. Seated in the heavenlies. On the throne. And we will be made like him soon. But we, there, there are glimpses of the new creation in each of his people as we are being made new. The outer self is wasting away, the inner man is being renewed day by day. Everything in all of creation is under King Jesus' control. He has fulfilled the Adamic and Davidic roles that Adam and David could not. Both of those men were messes. They were rebels. Adam was a failure. David was a man after God's own heart, but look at his life, his family, his household. A hot mess. King Jesus has brought God's promised salvation and rest. King Jesus has destroyed the power of sin and death. By virtue of his cross and resurrection, the incarnate Son has ascended to the right hand of God, where, he, where we will soon reign with him in the creation to come. We... 
in this coming new creation, we will judge angels. Because while we are temporarily below them, we will be for all eternity above them, and we will judge them. Why? Because of the Son. King Jesus has fulfilled the promise of Daniel 7. He is this Son of Man who has received a kingdom from the Ancient of Days, who has put the enemies of God to death, who has received this kingdom and then has turned around and given the kingdom to His people. So, beloved, we don't turn back to that which once dominated us. We don't look back to the law that can only condemn us, that only increase sin, but we look forward to the one who perfectly obeyed the law. We look forward to the one who fulfilled the law. The law's primary purpose was to point to him. So when we look at the law, we got to let it bounce our eyes off of it to Jesus. Jesus has fulfilled it. We look forward to the world to come, the new creation, not back at this present creation that is fading away. So, this is part of one long sustained argument from Hebrews 2, 1 and 4 through 5 and 9. So, what was his main point? Pay closer attention. Don't drift away. Don't drift. Don't drift away from our king and his coming new creation. Don't stare at your suffering. Stare at your Savior. Don't be consumed with what seems to crush you. Rather, be consumed with him who cares for you and has raised you from the dead. Stay locked in on our Jesus who will never disappoint or harm you. Everything you suffer and give up for Christ's sake in this present world will be immeasurably, immeasurably paid back to you with eternal life and intimacy with our God and King, Jesus Christ. Sin will be undone in the world to come. Don't turn back to this present world. Don't get distracted. Turn to him who tasted the fullness of death on your behalf so that you'd live forever with a God who loves you, cares for you, who created you in his image, and who has restored that image in his son. King Jesus is preparing for you a house in a city whose foundations have been built by God. No sin, no disease, no sadness, no tears, no loss, no heartbreak. Don't drift from this sun. Don't turn back to the things which dominated your affections in time before, in place of our covenant-keeping God. Turn your eyes to this son, who is the man, the son of man who will soon usher in the world to come, the new creation, in its fullness at his return. Third point. Have hope because Jesus represents you before our caring God. This is really good news. And this will carry over really throughout the rest of Hebrews. Jesus' representation for us. Don't lose hope, beloved. As you live for Jesus, fight sin, strive to obey in faith, and seek to win the lost. Don't lose hope as you battle the various manifestations of the same kinds of sins that you have been battling for years and years. As you pursue Jesus and believe the gospel longer and longer, you'll realize how deeply rooted your sin is in the flesh. And hear me. Hear me in this. This is important. You've been made holy by the work of Christ, period. Done. You've been made holy. Your position before God is as an unshakable holy one, a saint. Why? Because you've been united to Christ and this glorious new covenant union. Your position as a saint or as a holy one cannot be shaken or lost. That's our status. That's our positional sanctification. But many of us rightly understand that sanctification is also a process by which we are being progressively transformed into the image of God, the image of Christ. 
This is called progressive sanctification. We hold both of our positional sanctification and our progressive sanctification in tension. You are holy, full stop. And you are growing in holiness. Both are true at the exact same time. You are holy, and you are being made more holy by the work of Christ. Both are true. But beloved, I, want you, I don't want any of you to confuse these realities or confuse your justification with your progressive sanctification. You stand justified before God solely through the work of the incarnate Son, Jesus Christ. It is Christ's active obedience in His life and His passive obedience in His death that have won your righteous standing before God. You have been credited with the righteousness of God. God in Christ has declared you not guilty. That's your standing, not guilty. Righteous because of my Son. You do not stand righteous. You do not stand holy before our Heavenly Father because you are a great person or you do great things. We must not insult the Lord's glory by, by believing that we can attain to His righteousness through our creaturely efforts wrapped up with a bow on top in our sin. No, we stand before the Lord as a loved people because Jesus has won it for us through his death and his resurrection and his ascension to the throne. The incarnate son has purified us from sin through his suffering of death, tasting death for us all so that we might be reconciled to God, have peace with God, and be adopted as children solely through our union with him. Beloved, we have the full forgiveness of sins not because we do the local church right. We have the full forgiveness of sins not because we are reformed in our theology. We have the full forgiveness of sins not because we have great marriages or because our parenting is excellent or because we evangelize everyone we see, or because we have consistent quiet times, or because we are very polite, or we're well-behaved children, or because we're generous to others. Apart from God's redemptive work in His Son, we are dead in our sins, corrupted by wickedness, destined for spiritual death under God's wrath, blinded by Satan, lovers and haters of this world, and enslaved to foolish and destructive passions. Why? Psalm 8, because Adam, the first man, was created in God's image. In reading Psalm 8 in light of Genesis 3, we see that Adam rebelled. Adam disobeyed God. He obeyed Satan and his own desires. And since Adam was our federal head, our covenant head, our covenant representative, when he fell, we all fell. We lost paradise, covenant relationship, intimacy with God, God's rest. Adam's guilt and sin took us low, lower than the angels, in fact. But because the Son became a man and he humbly emptied himself by taking upon himself a true and full human nature, he was made temporarily lower than the angels, and he suffered unto death in obedience to God's plan to redeem us. God has highly exalted him. And God has bestowed on him everything that the Son wants, which is everything that the Father wants, which is also everything that the Spirit wants. Namely, part of that is to redeem each of His people. Adam is the head of the old creation. That's why everybody born in the world is born in Adam, except Jesus. Jesus wasn't born in Adam. Jesus is the head of the new creation. So when we are born again, we are born in Christ. United to Him. He is the King of the world to come. All of those who trust Him by faith, who turn from our sin and disobedience and repentance, we become united to Him by faith. Whatever is true of Him is true of us. Like, walk around with that reality, knowing that 
and you, you will not say, ha, 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 I get to do whatever I want. It will be, you are so majestic, God. You are so great, and, and you care for me. Who am I? And he will tell you, you're my son. You're united to my son. So, of course, I care for you. Of course, I love you. All the promises that are true of him are now yours. By faith alone. Not by your works, but grace alone. And I have an entire new creation. Everything that you've ever wanted to have in this life that is good and from me, you will have in the new creation. Life everlasting with me. Covenant relationship. No hindrance of sin. In Jesus Christ, God has undone Genesis 3. Sin and death. He's undone it. He's destroyed the power of death. He's destroyed the power of sin. You're no longer enslaved to sin. You're now slave of Christ. And Jesus, the promised son, is ushering in a new creation where all of the sinful work of Adam and all the sinful work that we have contributed will be completely undone. King Jesus will return soon to judge those who have rejected him and who do not want him. And then he will burn this old creation. And then, like a phoenix out of the ashes, we're going to see this glorious new creation that can never be corrupted, that can never be lost, and that we will enjoy with him forever. And it is all by God's grace alone. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Don't be hopeless as you consider your relationship with your God. You must remember that Jesus, not Adam, certainly not you, is your representative and your advocate before the Father. That should inform how you pray. That should inform how you perceive the Lord's disposition towards you. This representation is only possible because the Son humbled himself as a man so as to stand before God as the last and greater Adam and as the king, the promised Davidic king and greater king. Adam's one act of disobedience led to the condemnation of all men. Christ's one act of righteousness, Paul argues, leads to justification and life for all men. By the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by Christ's obedience, the many will be made righteous. The author of Hebrews is emphasizing in this section, particularly through the use of Psalm 8, that the new covenant of Jesus is superior to everything before it because the Son of God is himself our representative. Before the Father... The Son stands for you. The Lord cares for you because the Son stands for you. The Lord is mindful of you because the Son represents you. Throughout the next several chapters of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews is going to strongly emphasize the absolute necessity of Jesus being your representative. He is our representative and our substitute. But in this particular section, it's emphasizing his representation. And the author of Hebrews begins to lay the foundation for that particular point in 2, 5 to 9. Saints, Jesus represents you before God. Just let that sit on you. He represents you. And, and y'all are all dummies, just like I am. And Jesus represents you. Jesus represents you before God. Isn't that such good news? You're hidden in Christ. And Jesus gives you the credit for all of his work as the Son. Simply because you've been united to him by faith. He gives you all of the credit for his work. Why? Because he loves you. Why wouldn't you want to live for him? When you were so loved, 
In Christ Jesus, you see true humanity. You see what it means to be human. You see what it means to be a man. You see humanity as we ought to be. You see humanity as we will be. True humanity isn't being a depraved sinner. That's not true humanity. That's fallen humanity, for sure, and that's true. We're all fallen in Adam, but, but that's not the fullness. That's not true humanity. Jesus wasn't fallen. He wasn't broken. He came to save the broken. True humanity isn't being a depraved sinner. Fallen humanity is being a depraved sinner. To err is not true humanity. To err is human is a silly statement, unless you qualify it and say to err is fallen humanity. Well, yes, absolutely. I totally agree with that. Jesus didn't err. He didn't make an error. He didn't sin. He didn't have a fallen, corrupt nature. True humanity is seen in the person and work of Christ. The more you become like your representative, Jesus, the, whole, the more human you will look and act. Sin is irrational. It makes you less human. Obeying Jesus, looking like Him, you look more like the humanity that God created in Genesis 1 and 2. Jesus is the picture of true manhood. True humanity is wrapped up in Jesus. And since Jesus is our representative, we have no need to be ashamed of following him. You know, over the past several decades, I'm sure all of you, like me, have probably been ashamed or embarrassed at one time or another by a politician or an official who was elected to represent us. Or, you know, maybe even a, a father or a mother or a grandparent or whatever. Whether they said or did something publicly foolish or were caught in grave sin or moral failure or came across as blabbering narcissists or were often incoherent in speeches, got lost on stages, fell downstairs, we often had the desire to kind of like duck our heads and, and say, ah, I wish this person didn't represent me. Cannot believe that this person is the, free, the leader of the free world. That's never true as we look at Jesus. You always want Jesus to speak for you. King Jesus always acts perfectly according to God's plan. King Jesus never loses one of his people. He never embarrasses a person he represents. We're the embarrassing ones. And yet, we'll see in our next section, Jesus isn't ashamed to call us brothers. King Jesus is so great to moral failures like us. Not only does he accept us as we are, he never leaves us where we are. He empowers us by his spirit to put the deeds of the flesh to death, to put on holiness and righteousness as we're being more and more conformed into his image. Beloved, don't be fearful. Jesus holds your past, present, and future. It's all in Hebrews 2, 5-9. He has redeemed you from the sin that once dominated you. He's pulled you from the jaws of death. He has seated you with, a, with him in the heavenlies. You aren't defined by your flesh and your past sins anymore. You are hidden in him because he has tasted death on your behalf. Presently, King Jesus rules over all things, even though, verse 8, it may not appear as though he's reigning and ruling. Don't let appearances fool you. Jesus died. He was vindicated by the Father, risen from the dead by the Spirit. And he has ascended to God's right hand as the Son, the Son who is the King, inheriting the promised throne by virtue of his suffering unto death. He died. He was raised. He's now ascended. You died with him. He has indwelt you by his Spirit so that you might endure to the end. Your life, your circumstances might seem out of control. It might seem like it's outside of his ruling authority, like things aren't in subjection to him. But Jesus is king of all creation. He's king of the universe, so that we can confidently say with Paul, we know that for those who, are lo who love God and all things work for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, who, who can condemn us? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us as our representative. 
Romans 8, 28 and 34. The king works all circumstances and events out for our good and his glory because he has both the power and the will to do only good to us as our representative before the Father. Nothing that happens to us is pointless or wasted by King Jesus. All of it is bearing down on this coming new creation, the world to come, where he is the king. Nothing happens that is pointless or wasted, so we press on in the present. Knowing that we stand justified before God, now, because of Jesus, we have been forgiven for what we have done in the past, and that we will stand justified before God on the last day because of Jesus. Our past has been taken care of. Our present is secure. Our future is coming soon. And it's unshakable. We look forward to that future day in hope because God has subjected the world to come to King Jesus. And King Jesus has invited us. Not only has he invited us, he's like building things for us. Places for us. A city for us to live with him as fellow citizens of his new creation. The incarnate Son of God has won our salvation, beloved. He's won it. May God cause us to remember these glorious truths so we might not drift away from him or lose hope in the midst of our hardship. 